It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall. On the show this week, we are looking at the severely strained relationship between China and Japan and the prospects for some form of detente at next week's APEC summit in Beijing. Tensions have ratcheted up between the two countries over the last two years, fed by territorial disputes and lingering bitterness over Japan's war record. Armed conflict is unlikely, but not totally inconceivable. And the rancor has had big economic ramifications, with Japanese companies scaling back investment plans in China and looking to locate their factories elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Shinzo Abe, Japan's Conservative Prime Minister, is hoping to engineer a potentially pivotal bilateral meeting with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping next week. It could mark the beginnings of a thaw, but the initiative may come to nothing. Joining me down the line from Tokyo is David Pilling, the FT's Asia editor, and Jamil Andalini, our Beijing bureau chief, joins us from the Chinese capital. David, how did it all come to this? Shinzo Abe came in it seems, wanting to try and improve ties with China after the more provocative Koizumi years. Where's it all gone wrong? Well, by the time Abe came to power, relations with China had already soured. There were many reasons for that, but perhaps the main one was arguments over islands, rocks, really, that the Japanese called Senkaku and the Chinese called Diaoyu. And Japan has administered these islands for many decades, but China contends that they were stolen in 1895, which was the year that Japan defeated China in a war. So history is still very, very much alive. And Mr. Abe has been very firm in pushing Japan's case and in rejecting any inkling that China may have a case or that there is even a dispute over these islands. And things got even worse when Mr. Abe decided to go to Yasukuni Shrine which is a shrine to Japan's war dead that is considered a sort of symbol of Japan's nationalism and inability to repent in China. And so that's the background. Jamil, if events conspired against any attempt at detente from the Japanese end, would it be fair to say that Xi Jinping has been more intent on using anti-Japanese sentiment to cement his power in China? Yeah, that's quite clear from the, when he took over as the paramount leader at the end of 2012. He came in on a wave of anti-Japanese street protests in Beijing that were at least tacitly supported by the government at that time. And the story was, it's very hard to know, the inner workings of the Communist Party because it's so um, opaque and so secretive at the top levels of the system. But the word was that he was actually... The point man, even before he took over as chairman of the Communist Party, he was actually supposedly in the driver's seat on the issue of Japan. And uh, it's clear since he's taken over, everyone is in agreement, even uh, in, within the Chinese foreign policy establishment, they're very clear that he is uh, much more hardline than his predecessors. If you go back several years, you could see um, Wen Jiabao, the premier of China, 
until 2012. And he was uh, playing baseball with Japanese prime ministers and photo ops of him and, you know, his little baseball uniform playing a bit of baseball. Was astonishing pictures. And whereas Xi Jinping has not even been willing to be seen in the same room, Mr. Abe. Xi Jinping has a personal legacy of anti-Japanese sort of sentiments. But if you look back, his father, he's known as a princeling. His father was a very senior Communist Party official who sort of made his name as a commander, a, a guerrilla fighter in the revolution and in the World War II, fighting the Japanese. So there's almost a sort of family pedigree of anti-Japanese sentiment for Xi Jinping. And it uh, really is something that plays well, I have to say, in the Chinese context. There's no upside to being soft on Japan in a Chinese context. But if Xi Jinping has now consolidated his power, does he need to still use Japan as a tool in this way? There are various thoughts about whether he has fully consolidated his power. It's been two years and he's, he's clearly the leader of the country. But um, again, it's very opaque, but there's a lot of talk about challenges to his power behind the scenes. Very powerful in- interest groups who maybe are not so sold on the idea. Jamil, to what extent does China's economic slowdown play into this debate? When I was in Tokyo a couple of months ago, some Japanese business people hoped perhaps that China might be keener on reducing tensions in order to maintain Japanese investment into China and therefore act as a prop to Chinese growth. Yeah, I think that's definitely a factor. You could look in the first three quarters of the year, Japanese investment into China is down more than 40%, I believe, in the latest numbers. Also, um, Japanese visitor numbers are way down. But it's interesting, part of this appears to be because of the weak yen. So um, Japanese outbound investment in general is down a fair bit, not that much, but still down into every other part of the world as well. Meanwhile, quite interestingly, Chinese visitor numbers to Japan are surging and are the highest they've ever been. And again, that is seen as partly uh, to do with the end. But yes, at this time, as the Chinese economy slows even more and as foreign direct investment seems to be slowing, it had its worst couple of months recently since the financial crisis. It really does seem like there's more pressure on China to revive the relationship, at least the economic side of the relationship, maybe putting the politics to one side a bit. And uh, you can see that there's been a definite softening of the tone on the Chinese end, they're, they're saying they're not willing to make any compromise and that it all has to be Japan, but you certainly don't have street protests. And Japan has done some things that the Chinese have actually stayed relatively quiet about, whereas in the past, the last couple of years, they would have made a much bigger fuss in previous years. So, David, do you think we might see a breakthrough uh, next week? Well, I think it's quite up in the air. I think it's very clear that the two leaders are going to shake hands um, as sad as it is to report that as a breakthrough, and um, that, that could be something of a breakthrough. But what I think the Japanese really want, and possibly what even the Chinese really want, is some kind of fuller meeting. And one of the things that I think both sides are probably quite keen to discuss is a hotline so that if there were an accident around the Senkaku Diaoyu, um, somebody fell in the sea, somebody got shot, something untoward happened, that this wouldn't immediately escalate. And of course, if the two sides are actually talking to each other, which they really haven't been at the highest levels, then these things are much easier to control. What the Chinese are asking for, or what they appear to be asking for, is a couple of things. One is they want um, an assurance from 
Shinzo Abe that he will not visit Yasukuni Shrine. The other is that they want Japan to admit that there is a dispute over the islands. At the moment, Japan says there's no dispute because they're clearly Japanese. Now, the Japanese are saying that they will give them neither. It's be quite hard for Shinzo Abe to certainly say publicly that he's not going to go to Yasukuni Shrine, uh, partly because he wants to, and he did go, and partly because next year is the 70th anniversary of the war, and to leave, from Japanese perspective, two million war dead unmourned by the prime minister would be considered a difficult thing to do. So certainly to assure the Chinese publicly that he's not going to go would be very difficult. Now, the first time Abe was prime minister, he appears to have made what the Chinese called a gentleman's agreement that he wouldn't go, and indeed he didn't go. He never announced this, but it is a fact that while he was prime minister, he did not go to Yasukuni. The Japanese are now denying that there was ever such a gentleman's agreement. So you can see the kind of games that are being played here. There's a lot of brinkmanship, a lot of gamesmanship. People around Abe are putting the chances of a meeting between Xi Jinping, a proper meeting that is, between about 50 and 80%. But this is a very fast-moving situation. For all I know, those percentages may have changed in the last 24 hours. Jamil, the Chinese anger towards Japan is partly, of course, a proxy for Chinese relations with the US. To what extent does the American role here come to play? Yeah, the American role is very important. In past disputes, they've played a role of trying to calm down one or the other side or both. Really, they've played a mediating role. They've also played a role where they've kind of been behind the scenes. And at least on the Chinese side, there's a suspicion that the Americans have helped to provoke some of the tension and troubles. And as you say, in the end... Japan is often seen as something of a proxy for America these days in the region. I think if you look at the U.S. relationship with China, we're even, at the moment, we're even less optimistic about sort of anything very positive coming out of the APEC meeting. President Obama, right after APEC, will be having a formal state visit in China, meeting Xi Jinping and other top leaders. The wording, the sort of uh, expectations we're hearing from U.S. officials is that they say that the main deliverable they hope to get out of it, they like that term deliverable, is um, they, they say if they can maintain a civil tone in these discussions, then that will be already a great achievement out of the upcoming talks between the U.S. and China. So you can see, I think this is recognized in Beijing, that relations are pretty strained with pretty much everyone except maybe Pakistan. India, it's a little bit better, but still there's some real problems there. So I think there is a recognition right now in Beijing, and this is adding to pressure on President Xi and on the Chinese leaders to maybe, especially if they want this big uh, meeting, the, the APEC meeting to go well, there is more pressure on them to have some more civil meetings and uh, and maybe give a little bit to, uh, to the Japanese side and also maybe to the Americans. David, finally... Relations are pretty bad now, but they could actually get quite a lot worse, couldn't they? They could, potentially. I don't think either side wants that, although that's not necessarily the point. As I said, there could be an accident which sort of got out of control. I think what we're likely to see is relations improve and get worse, improve and then get worse. It's a bit like a concertina. I think, um, you know, talking about America and Japan being a proxy for America, 
the dispute over these islands of Senkaku Jiaoyu is sort of quite interesting and quite useful for the Chinese in one way. The Americans are bound, and President Obama said that, that the Americans um, will defend, in one way or another, these islands as Japanese territory under the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. But of course, everybody knows that the idea of any American life being lost over a bunch of rocks that are uninhabited, whose only inhabitants are goats and moles, is not going to go down well in Washington or America more generally. And indeed, America is not going to do that. So this is a very useful wedge issue, I think, for Beijing. The formal stance is that the Japanese and the Americans see absolutely eye to eye over these islands, but everybody knows that actually there are differences in these islands much more to Japan than they do to the United States. Okay, that's it for this week. My thanks to David Pulling and to Jamil Andalini. World Weekly is produced by Fiona Simon. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.